0: Can you open the door, open the door for somebody else. Welcome, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to Just another episode of the vaccine fall conversation fall with, with and Dr. Bob. <laughs> so that's <laughs> exciting, huh? You're so quiet this morning. <laughs> what? <laughs>
1: this is another uh, early morning episode for us. <laughs> yes, if you can't
0: tell already. I didn't get enough sleep. (laughs) Not like you would have been able to tell, but just in case you could, for those who feel like they know me already. You know, it's funny. I love when somebody comments on one of my posts on Facebook and says, I can hear you saying this in your voice. Like after, uh, you know, having listened to the podcast and feel like I get your inflection or understand, you know, feel like. We're all good. We're all old friends at
1: this point. <laughs> but I'm oh guess you like you walked up the driveway into the garage. I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse you. Wow. That's like, I, I purposely
0: did that, by the way. It was like I was overkilling like, yeah, it. I was like yeah. trying to look extremely tired. Did <laughs> I that, succeed?
1: <laughs> you did, and I was trying to like look all wide awake and, I'm and, an overachiever, uh, so I tried bright-eyed. to look eyed. Extra-
0: <laughs> Uh, Oh, so yes, I woke up at 545. And for some of you, that could be a regular day. For me, that's just 45 minutes short of what equates to uh, normalcy for me. And no, I will not accept a new normal. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 530? No, I'm not going to accept that.
1: Yeah, and then I texted you at 6. I'm oh, like, can, can we reschedule <laughs> You want to talk this? about this? You want to
0: talk about this on air, Dr. Bob? Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> can we reschedule because why? <laughs> oh, no, no reason. <laughs> Just you brought out some friends, some late night socializing with some friends maybe. Um, while well, yeah, I was being a good researcher at home looking at the material, yeah. getting prepared for today. And,
1: well, we have these, we uh, like, once-a-week neighborhood sort of gatherings, like, among friends, a little sort of – From six sw- feet away. Though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not oh, yeah. We all area. stay six yes. feet away. Social completely. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's like small groups, like, you mm-hmm. know, five, six of us. And just – because you get together to socialize because you have to, you know, this, you know, with what's going on. I don't know. You just have Yikes. to yeah, what, what keep happened? those connections. You have to stay sane. And, and yeah, we had, we had some fun. <laughs> so so – <laughs> So 6 o'clock this morning, I'm like, uh, okay, maybe maybe just you podcast, and I'll, I'll sit here I'll and comment, here. comment every now and then. Uh,
0: but, so today we are talking about something that I've posted about a couple times because I found this really interesting early on. And it's now a source of pretty universal concern across the board for a lot of parents because I've been getting messages. Yeah. Um, there is a concern that there is this COVID-associated mystery illness that they are calling multi-system inflammation syndrome now, uh, dash C for children. But uh, originally they were calling it pediatric inflammation multi-system syndrome, which was PIMS. And initially when this came out, this was a Kawasaki-like illness like disease or toxic shock syndrome. And the initial initial reports, I think I posted about this over a month ago, I want to say maybe. Yeah. I, I tend so. to be on the the <laughs> brink of what's going to be the new topic. Um, you guys get me. And so the, the first time I, I, I posted about it was the UK. Yeah. The UK was the very first place that said there's this mystery illness. And then right after that, You heard a couple cases in New York, a couple cases in L.A., and then like maybe one or two in Seattle. And, you know, I have to say, I find this all very interesting when we see where things. So before we get into all the whole deal, Mm -hmm. where these things pop up. So like at the very beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, um, they were talking about New York, California, Washington being these hot spots right? Because it first started in the nursing home in Washington that is in New York. And and California really was never a hotspot. I don't know why that kept getting brought into the conversation. I know President Trump kept talking about, oh, I've been in talking with governor, all mentioned the governors of these three states. Um, And, you know, the thing about these three states is these are three states that have been really, really heavy in the vaccine mandate discussion. Hmm. And recently, specifically recently, uh, that have had All of this new legislation coming out to take away exemptions, take away medical rights as it relates to a medical intervention like vaccines. And I find that so odd, you know, to me that like we've got these hotly contested. Issues like vaccine mandates in these states that are democratic majorities, where they are pushing government intervention and government oversight into the personal world of you and your family and and parental choice and overriding parental choice because they feel children are a product of the state, essentially. Mm-hmm. So we've got very, very democratic run states that are very heavy in vaccine mandates. And just coincidentally, they happen to be where the first hotspots are of this outbreak. Then move forward in time. And now all of a sudden, they're the states that we're seeing concern over this new mystery illness also. Hmm. And all across the board, there's a level of fear in this, right? In In these states that we're talking about. What's even more interesting to me is these were not the first states where the coronavirus outbreak was. The outbreak was first in Asia, in multiple countries in Asia before it was even over here. And we haven't heard a single thing from a single Asian country right. about this new mystery illness. right? That, to me, is super odd because it starts with the UK and goes to the US. Those were on like the latter parts of where this outbreak started showing up, yeah. not the yeah. initial ones. So technically, yeah. we should have been warned about this from Asia. They would say, hey, we've already gone yeah. over our curve. We're down at the bottom, and now we're seeing... This.
1: yeah yeah and Kawasaki disease occurs primarily in asian in Asian kids you know particularly uh japanese kids right. but um it's primarily a, a you know a medical condition of Asian. Uh, people uh, very rarely in in Caucasians, and you're right. We should have been hearing all kinds of you know reports. And they were two months ahead of us, there. right? Yeah. So that would
0: have been the first place it showed up. And we're also you know or else we're not hearing about this. We're not hearing this in the Nordic regions. There's no discussion of this in Sweden, yeah, yeah. in Denmark, in Norway, yeah. in the Netherlands. Like we're talking about areas, especially Sweden now, that remember does not have did not have a formal lockdown, left their children in schools. Kids have been in schools in Denmark for the last month already. So this is something yeah. that if it it were really widespread and connected to the virus, we should be seeing it right. everywhere. The virus is and has been and has been, you know, even more dominant. And this was my whole big concern with coronavirus at the very beginning we had China, then we had, you know, other Asian countries like South Korea, Singapore, and Taiwan. And it was not super deadly in those other Asian countries outside of what we saw in China. It was not deadly in the other three Asian countries that I just mentioned. Then all of a sudden, it's in Italy, and then it's super deadly there. But then Mm -hmm. it's not deadly in the other European countries. Then it's in New York, and it's super deadly there. But it's not in the other states. When I see stuff like that, the way that my mind works is I look for, uh, works I look for patterns. Yeah. And to me, a virus should be consistent. It mm-hmm. should be universal. Like if it's deadly here, it's going to be deadly here. If it affects elderly here, it's going to affect elderly here because this is the nature of a virus, right? But we didn't see those consistencies. And everybody should be asking why. We shouldn't be focusing on the part, the places that were hardest hit saying it's coming for you. We should be looking at how come it's hard hit here and not other places. The same thing is happening with this particular, you know, media. We're getting this media blast about this dangerous parents need to be worried. Right, right. And I want to really bring to attention the fact that we have discussed, you know, COVID-19 as an infection pretty much spares children almost entirely. Like the fatality rate for children in the world is Basically 0%. That's how few cases there are of deaths associated with this in Mm -hmm. the world. We're talking about in the world, not just the United States. And and even the same is true for under 20 years old. So not just children. Babies, toddlers, children, teenagers, and even young adults. Okay. We've felt very comfortable knowing that children have been spared. And in a way that other viruses are not sparing children. Like, influenza's not sparing right. children. Measles doesn't completely spare children. But we've got this virus, which is supposed to be this the deadliest thing ever, shutting down the entire world. And it does not, you know, cause death in children almost ever. So there was this sense of calm, right? Mm-hmm. And people wondered, right. why are we closing down schools? Yeah. And we're going to talk about that in the next episode, about are children really a risk for transmission of this virus? But it was almost like... I felt like they were using this now to create a sense of fear around this virus and children because we weren't scared enough. Yes. Did you get that same yeah, feeling? I
1: totally got that that impression completely. And what, you know, I have been reading a lot of Kawasaki articles over the last few weeks, and one of the ones I saw out of Asia, and I forget which article it was, but it said, "Hey, you know, we're we're you know, a bunch of doctors over here in Asia where we tend to see a lot of Kawasaki's disease." And we feel it is not especially associated with COVID. Yeah, it might be happening, but we're not seeing it happen, you know, to any any greater degree than we would expect, you know, associated with any other illness. So even the countries where this is happening, where where they're specialists in this, they're saying it's not something that that you know we need to raise you know raise big alarm bells about you know uh, around COVID. Okay, so
0: here are the two points. These are the two reasons that. Again, the way my mind works is I mm-hmm. look for things that stick out. I've, I've told this to um, good friends of mine, people that know me, is that the way my, my mind works is I look for things that are wrong. Like that's always how I've sort of worked, which may come across as very critical. But really, I'm just trying to get things back in balance again. And if something sticks out to me, then, then I notice it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I have, that has been true for me in all the different sort of careers that I've had. And so when I read articles, I look for the things that pop out to me. And there, there will be things that kind of go, wait a second. So when I first started reading about this new mystery illness in children out of the UK, here are the two things that stuck out to me. One, not all children are positive for COVID. Right. So this is called a COVID-like associated illness, or, or they are saying coronavirus has now spurred this new illness in children. They are, in every headline, there's a connection between illness and COVID. COVID illness in children, dangerous COVID illness children. You know, they're putting yeah, this together. Yeah, yeah. That And so I said, okay. Well, if, you, if you're if you going to make that association, then every child should be positive for COVID because if it's something that's caused by COVID, it mm-hmm. should be positive. Now, they are testing children both with the PCR nasal swab test, and they're also testing with the antibody blood work test. So right away, when I found out that not all children were testing positive, I'm thinking, how can you even call this a COVID-associated illness without at least a 95% positivity rate? I mean... The children that are negative, what's causing the same illness in them? And how can – I feel like it's so irresponsible for media to be jumping on this as a COVID-associated illness when we – in New York recently, like I mentioned in a post this week, less than half of the kids in New York City, according to Mayor de Blasio, uh, were positive. And so how are they calling this? a COVID-associated illness when not all the kids have COVID.
1: I completely agree that I, that was my very first impression. Like the very mm-hmm. you know second that I saw them talking about Kawasaki disease with this, my, my very first thought was they just need something to increase the fear. And you're right. You know, people were not afraid, you know, for, for their children. And you're totally right. They, the media needed something and, and, you know, medical policymakers that are you know, pushing the, the stay closed agenda. They really needed something. And I think that's uh, they really latched onto this. It's unfortunate that the media treats these things this way. And- well, right. So,
0: so, the, so the first thing you notice is not all these kids are positive. Some are negative right. for COVID. So I go, okay, well, so this means there's, there could be another cause. There has to be another cause in the children that do not have exposure or antibodies or have had an infection with this particular virus. Okay. So that was the first thing that's, again, this is critical thinking. This is the way that you use logic to kind of go, well, okay. If it's associated, then every child should have it. If they don't, well, then that means there's another thing causing it. The second thing that I thought was, that came to mind right away is that coronavirus, this new novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it. This particular virus is widespread at this point. It's widespread. It's in over 200 countries, if not more by now. Um, We know it's hit a larger part of the population than people originally thought. You know, that new study in USC Mm -hmm. that was done a couple months ago, just published to show at least 4% of L.A. And then they estimate close to 25% of New York City has been exposed already Mm. um, because of that. They had a lot more exposure than everybody else. But this is a widespread virus. So if we know close to 6,000 kids are diagnosed with Kawasaki disease, just that itself, uh, every single year, and we have a widespread virus in the population, it would make sense to think that many of the children that are test that would have been diagnosed, that are testing positive for this or if there's a new illness are gonna also be positive for COVID nineteen mm-hmm. because they had exposure. Yep. Not necessarily because that particular virus triggered an illness, but more that they have an illness, they also have had exposure. And the irony in all of this is this is the whole correlation does not equal causation argument right, right. that is used against every parent that, that you know demonstrates a vaccine injury in their child saying, well, just because you had the vaccine and the injury happened doesn't mean they're together. They've used that for decades mm-hmm. as scientific basis for why you can't put a connection where there is none. Meanwhile, they have jumped to a connection, not just – they haven't put out there as a possibility. Have you seen these headlines? Are It's definitive. Right, right, right. So they've come to their conclusion saying this is associated. We know not all the kids are testing positive, and we know there's been a widespread virus. So my feeling is you're going to get people testing positive because – kids are going to be exposed. This is mm-hmm. a brand new widespread yeah. population virus, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: Okay, just kind of for the audience, so you guys know what we're talking about. Kawasaki disease, uh, if I can explain it just yep. briefly, it's, um, or, or you know, Kawasaki-like, you know, uh, or this multi-system you know, inflammatory disease, um, it's basically a vasculitis is what's kind of going wrong with you. So your blood vessels are getting inflamed. That's sort of the nature of this illness. And they still don't know what causes it. They still don't know why. But almost everyone believes it is virally induced. That it is triggered as kind of like an autoimmune in- inflammation type of reaction to a viral illness. So there's all kinds of different viruses that can trigger this. Right. So it's it's important for you guys to know. You guys out there with kids, it's not like COVID is like suddenly causing this specifically. Any viral illness can cause this. And in fact, the specialty that deals with uh, Kawasaki disease is infectious disease specialist. If, if you're admitted to the hospital and they, th- they realize you have Kawasaki's, uh, infectious disease specialist is the one that takes care of you, even though in many cases there's no infection that they find. Okay, right. they, they often will test you for a bunch of viruses, but the viruses aren't treatable. So it I kind of find it interesting that it's it's a vasculitis disease, yet it's cared for by infectious disease specialists just because it they consider it, it viral induced. And and just so you know, you're probably wondering, well, you know, how do I know if my kid has Kawasaki, you know, Kawasaki disease? You know, you know, what are the signs, what are the symptoms? So I think that's useful for people to know. The number one symptom and it's almost, uh, it's almost a requirement that you have the symptom is high fever for more than five days. Is it five or more days or more than five days? I think it's five or more days. Yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. it is.
0: <laughs> five plus days. Yeah, five plus <laughs> days. Yeah, let, Let's ask
1: the doctor, Melissa. <laughs> no, five plus days. So that's like a criteria. So if you have a fever for three days, no, it's not Kawasaki's. So if you have a fever for four days, no. So that's sort of why you, you start to suspect it is you have this really high fever. It's been five or more days. And now you're trying to figure out what's going on you know, with your kids. But then you have to have um, four out of five other symptoms that, that, uh, that kind of make the diagnosis. There's no test you run. You don't get right. like a blood test for it. There's no scan. It's just you, you have your high fever and then you have to have um, uh, basically uh, swelling and redness of your hands or f- and feet. Um, later that'll turn into like peeling around your fingernails, peeling of the skin. Um, you have to have conjunctivitis or like the the whites of your eyes will be red, but it's usually not, um, uh, draining. Usually usually not like mucus or pus coming out. It's just really red eyes. You have to have like, uh, your, your mouth and lips will turn bright red. Uh, your lips might, might peeling. You might start peeling. You might have a sore throat. You'll have, uh. Swollen lymph nodes in your neck, like considerably swollen, mm. and then you'll have like a, just sort of a generic rash on the body. So all those five signs, you have to have high fever for five plus days and four out of those five signs. Mm-hmm. That's how they diagnose you with Kawasaki disease, and then they they treat you with you know steroids and you know IV infusions and they treat you with a variety of different things um, uh, in the hospital bed. The main complication is you can get an aneurysm in your coronary arteries. So the, the, the blood vessel that basically you know, supplies all the blood flow to your heart muscle, that's, that's, what, that's what gets blocked when you have a heart attack is your mm-hmm. coronary arteries. In Kawasaki's, you actually get an aneurysm. So not a blood clot, heart attack thing, but an aneurysm, a, a swelling of the coronary artery and that swollen area can burst. And then cause a heart attack mm-hmm. in children. So, very, very serious complications. So, and very
0: rare, though, for oh, those it, that
1: incredibly have. Incredibly rare, yeah.
0: It's already rare to be diagnosed. Yeah. And then, on top of that, out of those that are diagnosed, for most, they recover, right? This, yeah, it's yeah. very, yeah. very rare that there's a, a, that kind of fatality, even from Kawasaki disease, right. from what I've read, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, if you have Kawasaki disease, you're in the hospital, the coronary artery aneurysm often will come later. So if they treat you with all these, you know, anti-inflammatories and they give you, uh, I think they might even, what, they give you aspirin or something to to help you know, prevent the cardiac complications um, and they do like an echocardiogram to make sure you don't have an aneurysm yet, most of those kids are going to be totally fine. Mm-hmm. They're not going to have any cardiac problems. And then a very small percentage later, you're right, we'll, they'll keep doing like echocardiograms every week and then, then sometimes they'll see an aneurysm and then they get more concerned. But but, you know, almost all those kids do fine. I actually had a patient I saw two days ago in the office. So I was excited that we were doing this episode. This baby had Kawasaki disease at three months old, had an aneurysm, and, uh, but did okay, and has been followed by cardiology ever since. And now I think he's like five years old. And But we were thinking, and, and his mom actually had uh, COVID like a month ago, but the child did not. The mm. child didn't get sick. We mm-hmm. were kind of worried about it, but he didn't get sick uh, which is interesting, you know, I have a mom in the household. Was he getting, exposed, maybe, and just oh, oh, had
0: very low symptoms, and maybe has antibodies, but just never yeah, showed. We're gonna yeah, we're going to check. Yeah, we're checking for
1: antibodies now because. But the parents said he never got a single symptom, so those were that was very fortunate. But um, so that's kind of the whole deal with Kawasaki's, and uh, and what I find interesting is is we already know COVID is causing multi system inflammation we know we already know it's causing vasculitis in adults and it's causing you know lots of different organ problems it's causing cardiac problems and we already know covid is doing that and so to me there's no surprise that a very tiny percentage of kids are going to have this right. this vasculitis this inflammation and and so it's almost like They're they're finding a lot of these studies are causing are calling it uh, Kawasaki like, Mm -hmm. right? They're 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 admitting that yeah they're not having fevers for five plus days. They don't have all the features of Kawasaki's. Mm -hmm. They only have maybe two or three features of Kawasaki's, and and some of these kids are having you know aneurysms in the heart, but 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 you know most aren't. And so Mm. to me, what I think we're going to end up figuring out is. This multi-system inflammation thing is simply a very rare complication of COVID in general. It's not actual Kawasaki disease. I think we're going to find it's, it's something probably separate. And then if a few of these cases are Kawasaki's too, to me, I guess it doesn't really matter so much one way or the other. It's super rare, super, super but rare. But so
0: what happens well, with the kids that are negative, though, for COVID?
1: Yeah, so, well, so it's Kawasaki's you know, triggered by, by some other viral illness. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you think there's a chance that those who may have had it, that it could be a very rare, rare, rare complication of those who have had COVID. Right. And then for yeah. the ones that yeah. have not had COVID or been exposed to that virus, it's just another virus that
1: triggered exactly. it, and yeah. it was Kawasaki. Um, there's um, one study that I, I, I pulled out. The latest study I could find um, is May 13th out of The Lancet. Um, there's so many studies on Kawasaki's right now, but I wanted to get the one that was the most recent one and they threw out some very interesting numbers. So just to put this in perspective for everybody, they're talking how in the United States, about 1.7% of our COVID cases are in children, about 1.7%. And if we're up to about, um, you know, uh, 1.6 million cases in the U S uh, doing the math, We're roughly having about um, 25,000 cases in kids of COVID in the U.S., about 25,000. And so far, these studies they're looking at, they're just talking about like groups of like five kids with Kawasaki disease or 10 kids with Kawasaki disease or nine kids with Kawasaki disease. Um, Very small clusters. And that's out of the 25,000 kids that have tested positive well, for and COVID. Of course, we know that right? that
0: number is probably oh, that number is so way higher. Yeah, it, higher. it's probably ten times higher. You, if, you're right.
1: It's probably yeah. a quarter million kids mm-hmm. in the U.S. have, if have, not, have, if not more, honestly. Have had coronavirus. And so we're talking about what you know five kids or ten kids or twenty kids in the entire United States with this Kawasaki-like illness. Out of that many, out of you know a quarter million, probably you know mostly undiagnosed kids were, you know, exposed to COVID. So it's important to realize the chance that that any of our listeners, you know, one or two or three kids are going to catch this complication is is as close to zero as you can get. It's exceedingly small. And the authors in the study, they really wanted to uh, stress that. They said, you know, our, although this article suggests a possible emerging inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID-19, it is crucial to reiterate for parents and healthcare workers that children remain minimally affected by SARS-CoV uh, infection overall. So it's like they're they're talking about the syndrome, but they really stress you know, in their final conclusion. You know, they 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 call it you know crucial that to understand that children remain minimally affected. Right. But by SARS in general, and then especially by this kind of syndrome,
0: right? Because the same was true for SARS, the original Mm -hmm. SARS, we talked about that when Coronavirus first came on the scene, what was that early February that it was, we we covered it on the podcast and talked about its sister virus, which was SARS and how it did not affect children either. And so there was a good probability that this was going to be the same. And it has proven to be the same. They said in Europe, they've had about 2.1% of their cases across all of Europe that have been reported have been under 14 years old, which means 98% are in, you know, right. uh, young adults and right. older. And um, a couple things I wanted to point out is that, like you're saying, when they're covering in the study, there are a handful. You know, in the original discussion in the UK was about 20 kids. Mm-hmm. Then you've got these studies where they're like, oh, we see this cluster in five or 10 children. Mm -hmm. Then you have Mayor de Blasio coming out, going 145 children in New York already have been diagnosed with this, and it's a COVID-related illness, and people need to be worried. And furthermore... We need to consider keeping schools closed as a result because we thought, and Dr. Fauci said the same we thought children were unaffected by coronavirus. Turns out we may have missed the mark. Looks <laughs> like there might be risk yeah. after all. And, and yeah. again, like we said earlier, it's almost like they wanted that media fear. So let's look at New York 147 cases. In the article that I read, only 67 had shown positivity either with antibody test or with PCR tests uh, for COVID-19, only 67, mm-hmm. but 145 kids. Now, granted, New York has had a lot more exposure. And so even 145 kids out of you know New York City population, 8.6 million, even out of that amount is still very, very, very small. But my guess is that 145 might be a little inflated because we have seen in New York specifically some issues with inflating numbers based on a certain reaction that they're looking for. And I saw uh, Mayor de Blasio say that he basically um, was being asked by the CDC to be the one, you know, deciding what constitutes this new syndrome and giving out these recommendations to all the other local health departments across the country to what to look out for. It seems a little odd to me or a little risky to me to have the people that have been running that city with the way things have gone down. Yeah be in charge of who is labeled with this particular syndrome, because what if they meet only one or two of the criteria? It feels like this is going to be like the death certificate reporting thing. Let's just lump this in with this new syndrome, because these yeah. numbers are going to rise. As these numbers rise, so does the fear. And and people might say, well, well why would they want to do that? I mean... You have to understand that so much of what we're seeing, and we've had this confirmed by all sorts of different people in industry, you know, whether it's in government, politics, or in medicine, that this is not just based on data. This entire pandemic is being run with a political lens. And whether you want to admit this is going on or agree with this or believe that we've got a country that, that you know that's working that way or really a world that's working that way, unfortunately, it's the truth. And we know that because we see these differences in data. We see something that should be universally just objective. Here's the information. It has now turned into one thing scaring people over here and one thing saying, no, this is not so scary. And it's very, very different. Again, it's politicizing a medical issue. So when you've got a city and state like New York, which is kind of controversial, honestly, when it comes to coronavirus, and part of that comes from what I believe were these inaccurate and dangerous early ventilation protocols that were given, that I personally believe led to the unnecessary death of hundreds, if not thousands of people. Not because of the virus, but because of how it was treated. And I understand they they might not have known everything at the time. The same, it could be said for Italy, same thing, because they did the same early ventilation protocols there and they saw, you know, extreme casualties. I think to have anything come out in New York at this point, for me feels really difficult to believe because I feel like there's been inflating of numbers. There's been, Misguided data. There's been a lot of fear. There's been, they've very openly said, we're going to record differently here. They were the very first place to come out saying, we're going to include all these other things as possible COVID, even without a test. And that was the day that the numbers jumped up like 10,000 and, you know, 10,000 cases in one day or however many deaths in one day. And everybody said, oh my God, this was the deadliest day of, you know, all of this comes down to the way things are run, the lens in which everything is filtered through, who's the person giving out the information and what's the message Mm -hmm. that they're giving. And so as soon as I saw New York be this place, I mean, New York was not the place with the most cases necessarily across the world. We've got, I mean, what about China? What about these Asian countries? What about um, Italy? Again, we're not here. Italy was was extremely hard hit. Where are all the cases of this PIMS in Italy? Hearing absolutely zero about it, and they should have come before New York because yeah, they were yeah. a good three weeks before. Yeah. And so when you when you hear information like this, you have to really step back and kind of see this as a big puzzle, and you have to kind of go, well, where are the other pieces that would make mm-hmm. this fit in succession? So Kawasaki disease, you, you talked about this briefly. I just want you to know this was first discovered in 1967. Okay, this is in Japan. Um, and they have a, a specific society of Kawasaki disease in, yeah. in Japan, and this is an academic group that literally this is their job is to study this, and they have developed this from, you know, from the beginning until now, and they keep an eye on what's going on across the world as it relates to these patterns. So we know just in the United States, anywhere between 3, 4, 5, up to 6,000 kids every single year this coronavirus pandemic we'll, we'll, we'll will be diagnosed Peace. yeah and yeah. so we've been we've been five months into this pandemic almost yeah uh four to five months in so you can imagine there'd be if 6 thousand a year then we know we'd have maybe about 2500 pe- kids in the united states by this time yeah. should have been diagnosed yeah. over these first five months yeah
1: and we'd have a lot in the in the you know epicenters of, of our population like like New right York places and, with lots yeah. of
0: population yeah. and it's and it's typically a winter and spring diagnosis thing. This is actually proof data says this is typically discovered in the spring. Yeah. Um, and so the Japanese uh, Society of Kawasaki disease, I found, when I, I looked this up because I wanted to know who, you know, who are the experts when it comes to this? And they announced just a, a couple weeks ago that they have not found in Japan, they have not found in Japan or any neighboring countries, anything that shows a connection. Between this virus and Kawasaki disease. And I'm pretty sure they would also be listing Kawasaki like disease or a Mm -hmm. Kawasaki similar syndrome. The fact that we're not seeing this in Asia, the fact that we're not seeing this in, in Italy, there have been a couple cases, I think, in France and a couple in the UK, and then the rest is all the United States. It just, it feels weird to me yeah. that we have pockets of yeah. something that it, it. if it's a universal virus, then we should see the same patterns universally everywhere. And it, it does sort of make you wonder. The other element that I think many people might not understand or may not know is that... Um, this particular disease, this syndrome, Kawasaki disease, is also listed as an adverse reaction to three different, at least three different vaccines. Right. And um, I, I looked up a great website, which is actually a law firm that represents victims of vaccine injury as they have to go to federal vaccine court, right? And they need their expert testimony. And this is what they said about the three different things that have proven connection now at this point, proven documented connection to um, vaccines, is we have one, the rotatec vaccine, which is a live rotavirus vaccine. It says, uh, the rotatec safety label began listing Kawasaki disease as an adverse reaction after it was contracted in five children within days of receiving the shot. Okay, so this is on the, their, their own manufacturer safety label. Uh, Pediarix, uh, which is a combo vaccine, we know that has five different um, diseases at the same time. And it says a study found a slightly higher incidence of Kawasaki disease after this particular vaccine compared to just other vaccines at all. And the last one is Prevnar 13. And this is, you know, for pneumococcal. So these are three vaccines that almost every child is getting. Mm-hmm. Almost every child. We know, again, New York has a higher population density. There are a lot of kids in New York. Yeah. A lot of kids are being vaccinated. Is there a chance that there's this could be a you know possible adverse reaction stimulated in right. the immune system right. after routine well-baby visit appointments? Yeah. To me, it seems likely. The fact that this is documented, the fact that there have been cases that talk about this, it also seems likely. But like you said, it's not just one virus. In fact, um, as I was reading about this when They um, described Kawasaki disease, and and we'll give you the links to the stuff that we use today. It basically says, Kawasaki disease is a seasonal inflammatory disorder peaking in the winter and spring, and whilst no infection has ever been proven to be the sole trigger, the scientific community believe that any one of many infections may trigger Kawasaki disease in susceptible children. For the majority of cases, it occurs without ever ever, ever identifying the infectious cause. And I sent you, I don't know if you looked it up, but I sent you this article because somebody sent this to me. I found this fascinating. Here in Southern California last year, so 2019 in San Diego, they had an article out about tripling at this time of year, in, in April of 2019, this mysterious tripling of Kawasaki disease illness in children. And they were saying this is triple what usually happens around this time. What the conclusion ended up being is that it was some aerosolized particle that they think is coming from either pollution or the weather systems or whatever, which of Hmm. course is extremely vague, was not even based on a virus. Hmm. But We're talking triple the number of cases they would usually be seeing. And this was happening same time last year before coronavirus. So this leads to the ultimate conclusion here of, had we not known about coronavirus, would anybody really be thinking there's a new virus spreading that's causing a new mystery illness in children? Or would these children have been diagnosed with Kawasaki disease or Kawasaki-like syndrome? And it would have never made the news They would have never been testing them for COVID-19 because that wouldn't even be on the radar. And nobody would ever be making this specific connection. It's one of those, we are hypersensitive. I I tell you, if somebody came in with um, like a leg injury, and they were also positive for COVID. And if they happen to see that enough times, <laughs> yeah. I feel like they would say new mysterious leg injury
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, as a result of COVID exposure yeah. is worrisome yeah. Too many, yes, right? And it, exactly. and it just makes you freak out. Exactly. But like yeah. this culture of media reporting, everything is about COVID. Yeah. Everything's about coronavirus right now. Is there a chance that this entire syndrome this entire syndrome really is not some scary, dangerous side effect to having experienced the coronavirus. And this is something that would have been diagnosed anyway. It could be a reaction to vaccines that these children yeah, have had. Yeah, it could yeah. be another virus that nobody has a name yeah. for because they're not testing it. Right. And, yeah. I mean, could that – I mean, to me that seems very plausible that that's oh, yeah. really what's going on.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is either just um, – the regular amount of Kawasaki disease that we would expect to have every year, especially winter spring, is either just you know Kawasaki's as normal, or maybe it is you know a, a very rare complication of of COVID, just like it's a very rare complication of of you know many different viruses. I mean, either one of those is true. I think the bottom line is that is this is not a reason to fear. This is not a reason to protect children even more. This is not at all a scientifically valid reason to keep schools closed and mm-hmm. to keep the, the the lockdown. You will see the media continue to use this as a reason to push that agenda. But it's great to see how the, the Japanese society of Kawasaki's disease, they don't see it associated. And, and even this article, that, you know, this article that I read is from The Lancet. So it's out of London. And it's from a director of research, president of the Royal College of Pediatrics, and someone, another doctor is like a allergist, immunologist, and infectious disease specialist for a research group and a university hospital and medical school in London. You know, these are, you know, great credentials on these on these guys who wrote this article. And again, they say it's crucial to reiterate that children remain minimally affected by, uh, you know, COVID overall. And I think that's kind of the take home message. Don't let the media, you know, f- scare you into thinking this is something that you need to now also worry more about. We'll continue to see Kawasaki's long after COVID-19 is gone. Right. And, and another virus
0: might come right. into play and yeah. it, like yeah. all like new ones that come and yeah. mutate all the time. Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, that almost all kids will not be affected by this complication. And, and I think you're right. I'm sure they're going to totally be over-diagnosing Kawasaki-like mm-hmm. illness now. Yeah, any kid that comes in with complications of COVID and has you know, any sign of inflammation or fever, they're going to say, oh, there's another Kawasaki's like. Right. Yeah.
0: And so what's interesting, too, is so there's this uh, Italian article. There's a particular uh, academic society that is literally spending the next several weeks covering this. And again, we'll link these articles. Hmm. But they, they said this is April 28th. So this was like kind of at the beginning of when this was happening. They said there are these media articles – about this, and they're confusing, and they contain little factual information, Uh okay? It also says that they've caused a lot of worry. It said the original concern here was about 20 children in the UK, and that's out of about 12 million children in the UK, by the way, so 20. It says half of those had tested negative for COVID, according to their doctors. This was the initial mm-hmm. concern, right? Yeah. So this article talks about how the media is not even using facts. And I want to I wanna read to you a few quotes, because I've, I've covered this Two or three times already on my page because you see these headlines and I want you to know what a headline is. Here's an example. (laughs) Three children in New York have died from a rare inflammatory syndrome believed to be linked to coronavirus, according to the U.S. state's governor. Okay, so died coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Right. This is what you come away with at that point. And we need to really do that episode on basically what I call fake news, just the way that they report and break it down, because it's really interesting. And once you start noticing the pattern, you're going to be really, really good at deciphering information from here on out. Another title, Everything You Need to Know About a Mysterious Illness That Could Be Linked to Coronavirus. And this has Cuomo on the cover. Uh, And there are dozens more uh, that actually say new rare, you know, scary illness, basically attached to COVID. So in these articles, though, I'm going to read to you a few quotes that are inside these articles, okay, that you won't see in the headline. Quote, it's still too soon to pin all of the cases on coronavirus. Some patients have tested negative. Okay, that was NBC News. Here's another one from ABC News. U.S. health officials are investigating the illness, which is not yet proven to be linked to coronavirus. But this is already after they gave you the headline that said it is. Right. That made you think it is. Another quote uh, from the Chicago Tribune. There is no proof the virus causes the mysterious syndrome. Another one, the symptoms have been considered similar to Kawasaki disease, but experts have been unsure whether this is linked to the COVID-19 virus. That was USA Today. So the headline says we've got a COVID-associated illness that's, that's making children sick, hospitalized, and possibly can kill them. And then the data of the article actually says, well, there's no real proof that this is connected. And even the most recent article coming out of New York City that said the CDC now backs the connection. So they have officially come out saying that they connect the dots here. They are connecting the dots. And in that case, there were half of the cases that tested positive only. So, you know, it's interesting when you read through, if you get past the headlines, but these headlines are giving information that is completely inaccurate as it relates to the conclusion that you should draw. And the reality is it's too soon to be able to draw conclusions. Basically... As it relates to Kawasaki disease, they said in all of the articles that I read that, um, so here's a quote. It says, we want to reassure parents this appears to be uncommon, just like you said. While Kawasaki disease can damage the heart or blood vessels, the heart problems usually go away in five or six weeks, and most children fully recover. That was Dr. Jane Newberger which is, she's the director of the Kawasaki program at Boston Children's Hospital. And she wrote that news release on behalf of the American Heart Association. So uh, they also included a chief of pediatric infectious disease at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia said, we're still waiting for the smoking gun to be sure it's associated. In general, families do not need to worry about this. I doubt this is really new. It's just newly recognized. And uh, from NBC News, they said the newly identified syndrome appears to be the result of the child's immune system going into overdrive. But it's too soon to pin this on the coronavirus because patients have tested negative. And... um, and they have also mentioned that most children fully recover from this, like I said. So again, even with the coronavirus pandemic, most people fully recover. Mm. Like, like most most, right. as in 99 plus percent recover. But like anything else, and especially when fear sells news, mm. panic sells news, yep. emotion is the name of the game. They're going to focus on the teeny, 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 tiny Group that is having a negative response, and we're looking at people who could have genetic susceptibilities that make them unable to handle regular typical things like that happens every day, like we know we've I, I posted this the other day we have about eight thousand deaths every single day in the United States. Eight thousand people die every day, yeah. and people are watching this coronavirus tracker for deaths to be like, "Oh my God, now there were one hundred and fifty deaths now there were seven hundred deaths in the country today, and they're counting this up thinking like. That these numbers are astronomical. And like we talked with Mm -hmm. Senator Scott Jensen, you know, people have forgotten that death happens and it happens every day and it happens in children and it happens for reasons we do know and reasons we don't know. And there are weaknesses inside bodies of certain people that make them susceptible to not just coronavirus, but other viruses, other bacteria, or just their heart stopping, or we don't know. We don't know what's going on until we see something visible happen. Mm. And you cannot prevent 100% of deaths. You cannot make every single person not die of everything. It's just not possible. Like, we don't have that kind of control. I think we'd like to think we do, but we don't have that kind of control. And this idea of a lockdown policy to prevent every death and people will say you'll say oh this is very you know most people recover and they're like oh so it's okay for the ones that don't you're like no it's not okay but it's reality because like we've mentioned 50,000 plus plus people die from respiratory viruses and pneumonia every year not just influenza but all sorts of unnamed respiratory viruses Every single year, this is happening. And the majority of those happen between a five and six month period out of the year, right? Because, you know, during flu season. Um, Those people are dying every single year. But literally before COVID 19, nobody stopped to even give it a second thought. They literally went about their lives never wearing a mask never asking other people to wear a mask, never staying home, never, in fact, I bet if everybody could honestly answer this question it would be yes that they have gone out in public when they knew that they were sick at some point. All right. All right. Whether it was to the grocery store, to their kids school, wherever it was. They were potentially exposing people at some point and nobody ever stopped to think about it. We didn't have a moral discussion about this as a country. We didn't have we didn't you know make people lose all their jobs and shut down the economy to prevent this from happening. It happens all the time. It's this hyper-awareness, this hyper-focus that we have now for a virus that almost, almost always includes recovery for people. Like, this is not something that has that 30 or 50% mortality rate. We're talking this mortality rate. In fact, a new CDC – did you see the new um, CDC study posted yesterday? Yeah, yeah. The – Planning um, study. It was. It says it's a planning study because they're just. It's a prospectus, but basically showing about a point zero two, to point three in the elderly. That was the mortality rate. Point okay. right. three in the over sixty five and point zero two in under forty five as the mortality yeah. rate. Now point zero two is very different than fifty percent. Right. Which is what Ebola is, apparently. So when you look at these numbers and you look at our policy, this is what we've been talking about. You look at the data. We look at how this is politicized. We look at the media. We look at the fear. We're in a situation now where there's this new thing to be scared about. And it is absolutely going to factor in, you can totally bet me on this, it's going to factor into the policy moving forward on whether or not schools are going to open, how they're going to be allowed to open, what kind of experience these children are going to have when they're in schools. And according to the rest of the data, the real data, there is no reason for concern. Right? right. This is right. what we're seeing. You would yes. say, as a, as a, specifically as a pediatrician, yes. you literally work with the health and safety um, of children. You would agree, after seeing this, that this yes. is not a cause for concern, like you said, to close down schools, that we've got right. some new, new crisis um, coming at us. That's not what the data says.
1: Correct. Exactly.
0: So take that information and, and think about it. Talk with your friends and, and family about this. And, um As always, if you have any ideas for topics or studies you want to share with me, send them um, on Facebook at Melissa Floyd. And um, we like continuing to have, you know, these conversations, database, controversial discussions and dialogues here on the Vaccine Conversation Podcast.
1: We'll see you guys next time. (laughs)
0: The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as medical advice. Always consult your healthcare professional for information on vaccines and infectious diseases.